middle of a series of teaching called Flipped, How Jesus Changes Everything. And we're looking at uh, the teaching of Jesus found in the Sermon on the Mount. And we are um, exploring all of the different ways that um, the natural way that we think things should go often are very different in Jesus' kingdom. And so as we've been exploring this, we've covered a number of different um, topics uh, so far, and you can catch those on the podcast if you get the chance. You can go out through our website or where you find your podcast through iTunes or wherever. Um, but uh, we've been trying to point out that Jesus raises the standard to an impossible height. It's not just kind of a list of do these things and try these things harder. But he's raising them to a point where we have to really question whether we can achieve these things on our own. The point is not that Christians are people who, are, uh, who try harder to do extra good. But the point is that no one is good. Christians are those who, through faith, put trust in Jesus, relying entirely on him for his righteousness. See, throughout human history, most people have agreed on things like telling the truth. You know, moral systems, religious ideas, philosophies. They say you should tell the truth, you should be kind to others, you should honor your commitments, you should have loyalty and compassion, you should do to others as you would have them do unto you. But Christianity is unique in that Jesus raises the standard of goodness to the point where you can't do it, where you have to seriously consider whether you can do it or not. In every other religion... It's the good who get into heaven and the bad who don't, but not in Christianity. In Christi- uh, Christianity teaches that no one is good. Rather, it is the humble who get in and the proud who don't. It is those who hunger and thirst for righteousness who are filled, not those who are full of their own self-righteousness. Jesus raises the standard of goodness to the heights of perfection, but then he offers us and exchange our life for his. He dies in the place of the worst sinners and offers all of us the reward of the perfect life that he alone lived and welcomes us to share in his glory. So it's different. It's flipped. Okay, with that in mind, we're going to hop in today's, hop in today, uh, today's teaching, which is found in Matthew 5, uh, verse 33 to 37. That's the where we're going to spend the most of our time. Now, uh, kids who are, you know, Hillcrest kids who are here with us, how many of you are participating in the Sermon Notes contest? Anybody? You can wave at me if you want to, if you're doing Sermon Notes. Okay. Um, So pay attention. We're about to read the main Bible verses for today's teaching. So pay attention to this. If you can hear this, you'll get lots out of the sermon, okay? We're talking about oaths. This is verse 33. Of Matthew 5. Again, you have heard it said, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white. Or black. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. 
on first reading, you might assume that Jesus is saying, don't make oaths, don't take vows, that kind of thing. But is that what he's saying? I wish that we had, you know, a buzzer system here where people could honestly enter in their answers, yes or no, or I don't know, or maybe, or something like that. Because whenever I ask that question, everyone gets a little bit nervous, you know, is it really what's going on here? Some people are like, yes, and some people are no, but most people, especially in a Canadian context, everyone just says, nothing. Um, <laughs> right? Okay, so what is it? <laughs> Make vows and oaths or not, what is Jesus' point? See, all through the scripture, you see people making vows and oaths. The Apostle Paul made oaths. The first martyr Stephen gave his sermon in Acts under oath. Jesus himself made oaths. And any of you who have been married made a vow. Okay, there's two aspects of an oath or a vow. Let's talk about those. The two aspects, I think, are this, the past and the future, right? So the past, when you're under oath in court, you are generally speaking about the past, what has occurred, what you know to be true or not true. Under oath, it is expected that you will speak the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. You can't handle the truth. Is that, I thought somebody was going to yell that out, but okay. Or it is about the future, the other aspect of an oath or vow is your intentions for the future, what you will fulfill. Wedding vows are not about giving testimony to the fact that you have loved the other person up until now, but it is about your intentions for the future, to love them until death. So an oath or a vow can be about the past and about the future. Okay? So an oath or a vow is when you speak the truth about the past or about your intentions for the future. There's speaking the truth and then an oath or a vow, or we could say making a promise. So let's talk about speaking the truth. There is no difference, and this I think is Jesus' point here, there is no difference between an oath or a vow and your yes or your no. There is no difference for someone in his kingdom that what you say, yes or no, is an oath or a vow. They are to be held exactly in the same um, atmosphere. And Christians are told to speak the truth in love on all occasions, which is to, be, which is to remind believers and unbelievers about the truth of the gospel. This last fall, we did a, a series called Gospel Fluency, again, about language, about speaking your words, right, fluency. And one of the points that stood out to me was this understanding of speaking the truth in love. Many have just taken that phrase and kind of run with it without thinking about the context, thinking that, yes, you need to have, yes, truth or the facts, and you should love the person or have genuine care for them as you're delivering them the facts. But that's not really what speaking the truth in love is you know speaking the truth could be remember phone books right all of the information in there was accurate so if you just read the phone book you were kind of giving truth but that's not very useful and who has a phone book anymore anybody out there a phone book you still got a phone book yet okay i have the internet so i don't uh sorry uh okay now in its context let's take a look at this this is ephesians chapter 4 
verse 15. That's where that phrase comes from, speaking the truth in love. Let's read starting in verse uh, 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to, grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Now this statement, this speaking the truth in love idea, follows a list of people with certain, a list of certain kinds of people. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Now all of these roles are about communicating God's truth. It's not just any truth, again it's not the phone book. It's specific truths about what God has done, about who he is. It is reminding people of who he is and what he has done. Reading the dictionary again is truth, but not speaking the truth in love. An interesting point I learned recently, the word preach that's all through the New Testament in our English Bibles is really the word like herald, like at Christmas time, the herald, hark the herald. Right? The herald was a person who brought you the facts. It would run into your town and deliver you current information. They told you about the realities that were coming. If there was a war, they told you who won or lost and how those facts might determine what's happening for you, whether you're now free or a slave, depending on what nation won. They didn't bring in like a lifestyle portion where they talked about the latest fashion trends in Rome or Athens, right? They brought you just facts, hard news. We used to have hard news, but... I think because of money, it's a little bit bent, right? Anybody? Okay. Um, anyways, the herald brought you information, brought you facts, and that's the specific word that the New Testament writers thought that's how we need to translate um, the idea of preaching, the gospel. The gospel is hard news, facts, reality. And so when you preach, you're reminding people this is what has happened. These things are true. By contrast, I think some people use the word preach like when a guy's really digging in and he's, you know, dynamic and charismatic, funny or something like that, and you kind of are sitting there going, man, that guy can preach. Well, that's really not what it's talking about. Preaching is the hard facts of the gospel. Teaching is perhaps, again, applying those realities to your current situation in your life. We need to have both, preaching and teaching. But it's all about, again, the reminding people of what the truth really, really is. The reality is we're always under oath. You know, on, you know it's, some people, some Christians have taken these verses and said, okay, I can never swear an oath, even if I'm in a court of law or something like that. I actually am not supposed to put my hand on the Bible and say, yes, I'm under oath and I will take an oath. Some people have actually leaned hard that way. But the reality is we're always under oath. Did you know that right now in the throne room of God, court is in session? And every word we have ever said or will say, every action we have taken or will take is evidence. And we're going to be held accountable for the lives that we live. 
Just let that sink in for a second. Now, maybe you're thinking of this heavenly court that is now in session, remembering the lies that you've spoken when you've spun the truth for your own advantage, when you've used words to manipulate. This is the good news of the gospel, that there before the Father is Jesus Christ, our advocate, our lawyer, seeking justice for us, saying that the penalty for our sin has already been poured out on him. And that it would be unjust to pour it out on us because it has already been paid. We are free from the penalty of sin because Jesus has paid the price once and for all. Now maybe as you hear these words, and maybe even as we were singing these songs, these gospel songs this morning, you feel God somehow drawing you in. Perhaps it's been building for weeks or months or even years, but you know that you need to respond to him, that you need to recognize your sin, that the only way to deal with the brokenness in your life and in the world was through Jesus' death. To receive his forgiveness, you not only need to recognize that you deserve eternal separation from God, but also that he loved you so much that Jesus came to the world and died on the cross for you. There is no other payment necessary. And you need to begin to walk with him, begin to read his word, learn from him, and be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit so you can live a life that honors him. This is a simple prayer that we often pray here. You can pray this prayer as your first dedication in following Jesus. Dear Father, thank you that you love me and sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. I put my trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Help me live a life that honors you by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you pray that prayer for the very first time, please tell somebody. Uh, talk to whoever you might have come with or come and talk to one of the prayer teams after the service. We would love to chat with you about it and give you more resources and help you on your journey. Speaking the truth is costly. It will cost you friends. It will cost you time. It will cost you money. It may cost you your life. Jesus was under oath at the trial for his life. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said it so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. It was these words that sent him to the cross. So the next time you are facing the cost of speaking the truth, remember for your sake he spoke the truth. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Okay, making promises. Um, when you swear by something like heaven or earth or your own head, what are you trying to do? You're trying to give greater weight to your words. You're trying to guarantee them. You're trying to make them as immovable as the heavens and the earth. On one hand, people have weak and empty words, though. 
And, and I think that's what we feel when we try to make an oath that's bigger than us. We, I swear by the whatever. You're trying to make it bigger. You're trying to guarantee it beyond yourself, knowing that your words are weak. Human words are just a sound that disappears in one sense. For example, um, if I call my children for uh, dinner or for supper or something like that, hey, it's time to eat, I might get no action whatsoever in terms of movement from my children. I, I might, although sometimes I might say it again, you know, it's time for, come, come for dinner, it's time to eat. And I might even get a, coming, but then no children appear. You know, and sometimes I have to like forcibly go and, you know, get them and bring them to the table and sort them out. You know, I have to go and do that. See, my words and my actions are separate. They're different things. My words are not really an action. I have to kind of guarantee them by going and grabbing my children and putting them in their seats. God's words are different, though. When God said, let there be light, there was light. He didn't say it and then do it. Him saying it was him doing it. See, and Jesus says, the heavens and the earth were made by God's word. They are his guarantee of himself, not a means by which we can add weight to our words. God's words are the heaviest they're the most glorious. See, glory means weight. When God speaks, there's a weight to his words. They have a power in themselves. See, your words, is, your words are not like God's words in that way. What you say doesn't come into existence. In the same way, you can say, let there be light, but then you have to flip a switch. You can say, I'll be there by five o'clock. But then you have to account for a million unforeseeable factors to deliver on that simple promise. Did you stop what you were doing? Leave on time. Account for traffic, construction. Has your vehicle been properly maintained? Parents, how many of you have made empty promises to your kids already today? It's very, it's very easy to do, right? Or maybe on the flip side, rather than over-promising, yes, we'll spend it, yes, we'll do it tomorrow, yes, we're going to do that, over-promising, maybe you're, maybe you won't commit to anything, right? Like, Dad, can we have some ice cream? And you're like, we'll see, right? Some people just add this phrase to everything, Lord willing. And they put that on anything, and anytime they can't deliver on a promise, they can blame it on God. Right? <laughs> I know some of you use that habit, uh, just out of habit, and I know some of you even use it genuinely, so don't scold anyone who's using that phrase, but ultimately that phrase is about seeking the Lord's will, not about sprinkling our regular speech with Christian phrases. If you say you'll be at home at five, and you believe you must discern the will of the Lord regarding the matter, maybe don't promise that you'll be home by five until he's spoken to you. Do you know what I'm saying? Be careful with that one, right? Seek his will if you should seek his will, right? Be careful with your words. Now, though our words are not like God's words, he does take them seriously. Now, uh, we're going to go to Joshua chapter 9. There's a, a story here in the Old Testament that I think is interesting and it kind of points out some unique things. This is Joshua chapter 9, um, from 1 to 19. So settle in, and I'll read you a story with a lot of words uh, and names I can't say properly. Now, 
This is uh, starting in uh, chapter 9, verse 1. Now, when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, this is um, Joshua's cruising into uh, and taking over, um, again, the, the promised land and moving through the whole place, and they've had victory at Jericho and other places, and, and now they're moving on. Now, when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, the kings in the hill country, in the western foothills, and along the entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea, as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, they came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. Then they put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at uh, Gilgalans and said to him and the Israelites, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. The Israelites said to the Hivites, But perhaps you live near us. So how can we make a treaty with you? We are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, Who are you and where do you come from? They answered, Your servants have come from a very distant country. Because of the fame of the Lord your God, uh, we have heard reports of of him, all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan. Um, Okay. Um, And our elders and all those living in the country said to us, take provisions for your journey. Go and meet them and say to them, we are your servants, make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you. But now see how dry and moldy it is. And these wineskins that are filled were new. But see how cracked they are. And our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey. Now, when you read this, it really does seem like they're selling something, and you think, well, shouldn't they have known better? <laughs> but here's the problem right here in verse 14. The Israelites sampled their provisions, but they did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by an oath. Three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbors living near them. So the Israelites set out and on the third day came to their cities. But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders, but all of the leaders answered, We have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. So they had to honor the oath, even though they were tricked, they made a promise, and they were going to keep it, because they made the promise to the Lord. Be careful what you promise. When you promise something to someone, you are ultimately not just promising them. Your broken promise to them is also a broken promise to the Lord. And again, the antidote for breaking a promise is not to avoid commitment of any kind. What time will you be home? It's impossible to know the future. When will that project that you've been working on be completed? Once the final step is completed. Dad, can we have ice cream? We'll see. Right? Hey, we should get together for coffee sometime. Yes, that would be great. (laughs) 
It's funny because that's actually a promise, but in our context, we use it like we mean, who knows? <laughs> who can tell the future? So the next time someone asks you that question, get out your calendar before you speak. And then reply with a time and place or tell them the honest answer. Though our words are not like God's words, they are not powerless. But rather, I think they can be powered by three different sources. And we're going to talk about those as we head towards the end here. They can be powered by ourselves. We can say things and then fulfill them, right? I can say, children, come to the table for dinner. And then I can go and retrieve them and put them into that spot. I can fulfill my own you know, words. I can do it that way. But we might do this in a positive or negative way, fulfill our own words. We might say something negative about someone else and then treat them poorly because we believe our own words. The word becomes an action in the way that we believe that and mistreat them. We might say something negative about ourselves and then treat ourselves poorly because we believe our own words. Or perhaps we might hear a negative word said to us or about us and take it to heart. This is where the devil comes in. So there's ourselves, we can do it. But then there's also the devil. Um, When we have that thought, when we speak those words, negative words about someone else or about ourselves, it's like we give him a foothold. And that one little thought he can take and multiply into a hundred thoughts and into a thousand different ways that we could um, act that out in negative ways, negative outlets. This is something that we talk about a lot at Set Free, at the Set Free retreat that we run. Um, we have one coming up in November, and we talk about footholds and strongholds and the tactics of the devil against us. If you haven't been to a Set Free, cancel all your plans for November. Please come. Uh, and if you have already been to one of the Set Frees, but you're still dealing with some hurts and hang-ups, some habits, plan to be at Set Free in November. So the devil can take those things, our thoughts, those words spoken over us, and he can somehow multiply it into something that's even worse. But then there's also the Lord. In the same way that the devil takes words we speak over ourselves and others to bring about destruction, the Lord can make our words count for something greater. In 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 19, we read this about Samuel. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. See, Samuel was a great prophet. He wasn't perfect, and not everything that Samuel said was perfect, but the Lord spoke to his people through Samuel. He took the words coming out of his mouth, and he somehow held them up. This is actually a very helpful verse in terms of understanding how we use the Bible or the Bible itself. Some people assume that the Bible is a book written by people about God, their ideas, their thoughts or experiences of God. But the Bible is God's book about himself. And he held up the words of all of the prophets And the apostles, though it was written through imperfect people into imperfect languages, God holds up the words. He says, let there be light, and there is light. 
that it is a power in the word. The Bible is the word of God. In James chapter 3, we learn that our tongues are set on fire by hell. A few months ago, we went through a series on uh, James. We talked about um, the tongue and the power of our words. And we learned, yes, that our tongues are set on fire by hell. Jesus says in Luke 6 that our words come out of our mouths, but the origin is truly the heart, which means that human beings come standard with hell in our hearts. See, our words demonstrate the condition of our hearts. Perhaps you've been struggling lately with your words. They've been careless or unkind, indifferent or proud. You've been manipulative or sharp, angry or rude. Perhaps you've been speaking negatively over yourself, or perhaps you've been doing that for years. Perhaps you've been speaking negatively over someone else, or perhaps a whole group of people. James says that the tongue is like the rudder of a ship, and if you can't get a hold of controlling it, you won't even be able to control the rudder or the ship. How can we be like Samuel then, where even the Lord holds up our words? So we are at Hillcrest a bridge church, and we often say that, and what we mean is that we have people coming together from two different sides or from two different uh, ideas about uh, tradition in the church. Um, and when we mention the work or power of the Holy Spirit, uh, that we come from Pentecostal roots, um, that we're a part of a Pentecostal denomination, some of you get quiet and a bit nervous, and some of you say, you know, finally, now we're talking. Um, because we're a bridge church, there's these people coming from different places. Um, but in Acts 2, we see this imagery of wind and fire. Anyone who's familiar with uh, the Bible should recognize these two powerful symbols for the presence of God. It's not just about the wind or not just about the fire. It's about God, his presence. There he is, bursting in, and what comes to the believers is a new tongue. Not one set on fire by hell, but burning with the presence of God. See, if the tongue is like a rudder to a ship, um, without the power of God in your life, with the Holy, without the Holy Spirit coming into your life, you're never going to be able to take control. You're never going to be able to go in the direction you want. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, you can't even control the rudder, let alone the ship. But if your tongue is set on fire by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can change the direction of your life. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back just as I see a few closing uh, remarks here this morning and give you a chance just to kind of think uh, this over. So here's the main ideas if you um, missed them checking something on your phone while I was speaking. Um, oaths or vows, are you supposed to make them or not? I think the point is this. Every yes or no is a vow or an oath for the Christian. Consider the will of the Lord and commit. Don't make empty promises. Our words demonstrate 
the condition of our hearts. So we must seek the power of the Holy Spirit for a new tongue, a new heart and a new tongue. And if you want your words to have a lasting impact, speak the promises of God. See, kids don't need empty promises. In fact, this is one that I often hear and it makes me nervous. Don't tell them that you'll always be there for them. Because you don't know that. But speak the truth to them in love so that when trouble comes, they will trust in the unfailing promises of God that he works all things together for good. See, they can hold on to that when they can't hold on to you. So speak the promises of God. Not just parents to children. Again, speaking the truth in love is talking about the community of faith gathering together to remind ourselves of the truth, of the realities of the gospel that we can hang on to. So use the word of God more in your speech. And in order to do that, you've got to put it into your heart. I've been marveling at this scripture for the last year or so. Uh, just in the account of the crucifixion, it talks about Jesus being thirsty and asking for a drink. And it says in the, uh, the comment by the author is that he did this to fulfill scripture, the word of God. He did that to fulfill, which means, so he said he was thirsty. So either he was thirsty or he was lying. So I don't think he was lying. So the word was so <laughs> inside of him into who he was that to fulfill scripture, he got thirsty. <laughs> Anyways, I, I'm puzzling over this, this verse, thinking how powerful the word is that even Jesus got thirsty because of it, fulfilling scripture. Would you have the challenge before you as to put as much word into your heart that when you speak, out comes the word, but that even by your life, you would fulfill his will that you would bring forth your own destiny and the destiny of other people with your words as you speak his truth over their lives. So put so much Bible into your heart that only the truth comes out of your mouth. Will you stand and can I pray for you? Father in heaven, thank you for this time to be together and to consider uh, your teaching and that you care for every word that we say. And I'm reminded of um, the book of Job uh, and of all of the advice and ideas and thinking that um, people did and uh, almost everyone in the end of the story was scolded for their words. Uh, Father in heaven, would you help us to know the truth so that we could speak the truth in love to one another? Help us to live in light of your promises and not in the promises that we can make. And Father, today, for those who are just struggling um, with their speech, with what they say, whether it's uh, saying um, um, negative things about other people or themselves, I pray that you would liberate them 
I pray that the vows that they've taken over their own lives to say that they are only so smart or so capable or whatever it might be, the negative things that they've spoken over themselves, I pray that the lie would be revealed and your truth would come in. Father, I pray that um, people would um, set those things down um, for the words that people have heard from other people, the empty promises or broken promises uh, that have caused hurt and pain. Father, I pray that you would bring healing. And Lord, would you fill us with your spirit in such a way that we would have a new heart and a new tongue that we would speak your truth. Father, help us all as we go from here on to the rest of our week. Would you remind us of the importance of every one of our words? In your name we pray. Amen. just want to say thank you so much for being a part of our service this morning. Again, at the end of the service, we're just going to take a moment to just, uh, have a song of worship. And if you would like to stay and pray or uh, talk to somebody and consider some of the things we've talked about this morning, we'd welcome you. Uh, to do that, but I'll turn things over to the worship team. Thanks so much for being here.